The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and guten tag, and welcome to Historians and Lederhosen. I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, Fisher Hall, and a collection of over 30,000 artifacts. Check those out at frankmuthmuseum.org or right on our Facebook page at Frankmuth Historical Museum. This podcast will tell the stories of Michigan's Little Bavaria to the real Bavaria and anything in between. Be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history. Auf Wiedersehen. Welcome in, everyone, to another episode of Historians in Lederhosen. We hope you're enjoying the podcast so far and checking out all our other wonderful episodes. Uh, today, we're here to talk about oral history today. So, Garrett, let's get us started. What is oral history? I mean, in a sense, this is kind of oral history, but in a more, like, Whoa, concrete... So <laughs> oh, I know. I'm so smart. <laughs> In like a more concrete definition, oral history is conducting interviews with specific subjects in order to get their story or their side of an event. Um, yeah, they're planned interviews. We'll get into a little bit more of the, the nitty-gritty about how to conduct these. But oral histories can produce massive catalogs of recording audio or video interviews to help kind of retell the story of a specific event or a specific series event from the ground up, essentially. Um, and yeah, it's just really meant to present accounts of events that couldn't be written down, sort of like getting the emotional side of the events, mm -hmm. I guess. Well, that's why I always like uh, viewing oral histories rather than just like reading an account or mm -hmm. reading a secondhand retelling of an account too, is there's just a, there's a, a, a better emotional tie when you um, listen to or view an oral history. Like right. you really just get a sense of how they felt um, because I think so much is lost in the written word, uh, just the nuance of just like the way someone pronounces things, mm -hmm. just the emotion behind the way they tell their own stories. Like, you know, right. just all those little things that we have in our spoken language that just can't quite be captured and written. And like the way I kind of separate different sides of history in my mind is a person in government or a higher official is going to have a written account that goes through how they viewed an event. Mm -hmm. Whereas oral histories are kind of meant to be conducted with people of the community that don't have the clout to have a written trail behind them. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. It actually transitions well into the the next part here is just kind of oral history's importance to the, the field of history itself and to museums. And so I think to understand kind of this importance of oral history, like you're kind of hitting at here, Garrett, we first have to do a brief dive for our listeners into historiography or the history of history. I promise I'll be quick. I won't be too boring because historiography is... Us historians know it can be very boring. Am I in History 111 again right now? You might be. You might be. <laughs> Come with me on a journey. So, Dr. Neely's in the house. <laughs> um, since the first historian, um, history has typically been written from the top down or from the perspective of the elite, like you mentioned, Garrett. We actually see this with Herodotus, um, known as the father of history from Greece. Um, his most famous histories were his nine books called The Histories. One epic title, by the way, just to be able to claim <laughs> The Histories. Yeah, I wrote that. Um, I'm going to start <laughs> labeling all of my papers <laughs> The Histories. There you go. Um, which essentially, 
the histories covered the lives of prominent kings and famous battles back during his time, around 500, 400 BC. Um, and since Herodotus, history was typically written in the same fashion um, for centuries until pretty recently. Um, and a new generation of historians, they start to emerge around the mid-1900s, um, probably post-World War II era, really. Um, and they were really just kind of grew tired about learning about the history of these great men and great ideas and things like that, right? <laughs> history was more than that. Life is more than that. Yeah. Um, and so this new generation wanted to dig in deep and know how an ordinary person experienced history, right? Um, and so in other words, they wanted to reconstruct history from the bottom up. And so this is where um, a discussion on sources comes into play, and especially oral history starts becoming so much more important because they can tell us, like we've been hinting at, so much more than a written record mm -hmm. can, right? Um, and in fact, oral histories have also helped to preserve ideas and cultural traditions f for eons, since the beginning mm -hmm. of time, really. Um, in fact, many indigenous cultures, um, they actually pass down their history um, through spoken word, through their their traditions through spoken word, and they actually made these like big events where they would all gather in mm -hmm. the winter and and basically tell stories of the past. Um, and this is how they preserved their history, kept their religious practices alive, and things like that. Um, so essentially, oral history helps us helps us understand and look at history in a new sort of lens, right? And to reveal aspects of life that we wouldn't have known before. And so when we talk about how museums can use oral history, um, first, I think if there's ever a way in which you can incorporate them um, in exhibits or like educational programs, it's a great way mm -hmm. um, to do that. Because first of all, just think of like what an oral history is, right? It's, it's an interview between two people um, and sometimes as great as objects and artifacts are, sorry, Malcolm, <laughs> um, <coughs> they, they don't always tell the full story, right? You, and then in an oral history, you have a person. Mm -hmm. So there's a person to person connection. There's that emotional connection that I think you get, um, while someone is telling you the story of their life or this historical moment, right? Sure. Um, and so I think oral histories are just a great way to bring exhibits to life in that sense too, and mm -hmm. the museums should um, definitely use them as much as possible. Well, and, and it can't be understated that a first-hand account is always going to be one of the best accounts of mm -hmm. something that happened. You know, um, anytime we think about it, you know, we want those those primary documents. We want those first-hand accounts. You right. know, I, I think those go hand in hand. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that like oral histories is probably one of the most underrated but well-known versions of telling history because everyone has heard their parents or their grandparents tell a story right. about, oh, this one time in high school or, you know, <laughs> like back in my day, you know, uphill both ways. Uh -huh. You know, we, you know, there's that kind of like that, uh, that old idiom there. But like any time you hear those stories from your parents, your grandparents, your uncles, aunts, uh, whomever... Those are all the histories. Uh, you may not realize it because it's just a boring story that you don't want to hear because you're watching your your television <laughs> show or whatever. Um, but those they're actually sharing with you oral histories. So it, it's fascinating to me that like oral history is a very technical term mm -hmm. um, that's used pri primarily in academia and kind of in the the museum field. But it's probably the most actually well known version of the retelling of history. Um, but because it's not traditionally done in a classroom or anything like that, everyone kind of skips over it. But every you know. 
know, I, I give my own oral histories of my own life every day. Um, you know, telling my girlfriend like, Oh, like, I don't know if I ever told you this, but here's this funny story of this thing that happened to me in high school. And it turns out that it's actually part of a larger event that was going on in my hometown at the time. So I just gave an oral history, um, to my girlfriend. So, uh, yeah, they can't be understated that you can inadvertently do an oral history, even if you don't realize it's happening or you don't have a recorder on you, you've witnessed an oral history and, um, you've passed along history from a firsthand account, which is, I think, pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I picture, uh, Malcolm, your girlfriend just kind of staring blankly at you at the dinner, t- at the dinner table, like oh, hundred <laughs> percent, not not having the heart to tell you that you've told her this story three or four times. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm telling it with such vigor that she's not going to cut me off. <laughs> That's great. No, you're one hundred percent right. Uh, I mainly just talk to through people at walls. Mainly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. But so when we're talking about oral history, right? We've established these are great things. They're very important to the field. They're important for museum work. They're important in everyday life, right? Um, But now as professionals, how can we prepare to record an oral history? I think that's the question. So Malcolm, I'll kind of turn it over to you to to dive into that a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. Um, So a little bit of background on just my uh, use and uh, having conducted several oral histories is I've done oral histories for quite a number of years and I've done a lot of um, workshops and different trainings and stuff like that. So I, I, I think of myself as having a pretty good handle on the practice of oral history um, uh, capturing, essentially. Um, so given that, one thing that I've really um, realized and seen time and time again that um, it's really important, if you're going to capture an oral history or record an oral history, you have to know why you're doing it. I think that's so important. And it seems maybe kind of obvious on the outset. Um, it's like, oh, because history is important to record and et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I've seen a lot of oral history projects launched by different organizations over the years and stuff like that. And it's really obvious when the organization doesn't have a clear intent of why they're capturing these stories, why they're collecting these stories, or what they're even going to do with them, to be completely frank. So uh, my first advice to anyone that's looking to do oral history is really ask yourself the the why. You know, it's a great piece of advice. What's this for? You know, oftentimes oral history projects are launched with no plan or intent for their use. So it is important to record stories with intent. Why are you collecting oral histories. What do you plan to do with them? Why is it important to collect these stories now, too, which is also very important? And a lot of times that that final answer is really these people are getting old and they're not going to be around very much longer. Like, sure. And sometimes, you know, that sense of urgency can make you rush the process a little bit of like, um, you know, we're getting to that point now with uh, World War II veterans. Right. We're getting to that point that with, um, with Holocaust survivors. Um, I mean, the list is is long <laughs> in mm-hmm. terms of like people that just aren't around in, anymore from that era. So there's that sense of urgency sometimes where it's just like, oh, or even, you know, grandma isn't going to be around very much longer. And you kind of realize that you don't know a lot about their early lives, you know. Sure. Uh, but um, m- my primary piece of advice is just don't let that urgency overtake any other kind of thought planning in terms of really why do you want to capture this? It, it can't just be because, oh, well, the story's going to get lost, but what do you plan on doing with it? What do you plan on actually using it for? Because I think that's also going to inform the interview a lot too because if you just sit down with random people and go, tell me your story, 
that's so broad. Their mind's going to go blank. It's like me. Anytime anyone asks me my favorite everything, I don't remember. Like, what's your favorite pizza? Uh, I don't know if I've ever eaten pizza in my life. Like, of course I have. But as soon as you <laughs> ask me my favorite, my mind kind of just goes blank. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really why it's important. And, um, you know, why you're collecting these oral histories um, is just really at the core of the core question you should be asking right on the outset for me. Um, because, you know, you may ask the question, what's the damage in just collecting? Like, what's why not just collect them all and figure it out later? Well, I think there's a couple things that, uh, that can really be a disadvantage of doing that. One is it dilutes the interviewee's engagement. They think kind of what's the point? Like, if you can't tell them why, why are you recording my story – to them, it's going to kind of seem kind of pointless. And it's like, okay, well, why am I taking my time out of my day to tell you all these things if you don't even know why you want to hear it? You know, right, so right from right. the get go, it kind of uh, diminishes that. And it's also harder to get interviews too, because I find that um, a lot of times an oral history project is launched, but there's no subject, there's no sort of main intent or anything like that. So people don't want to take time out of their day for that. If you just say, oh, we're just collecting people's stories of Frankenmuth, like that's too broad. You know, mm-hmm. no one's going to know what to say or what you're looking for. Um, so having that intent will help you garner actually more interviews in the long run. Uh, the interview is not as focused, too, and it will feel kind of random. Like, if you're just like, tell me all about your life. Like, it has to be purposeful. You have to be kind of asking questions with some sort of focus so that, um, like Nathan said, you can use it for an exhibit later. So, like, if you're just asking all about their life, like, how are you going to ever pull five minutes out of that interview that's relevant to anything going on in the exhibit. Like, that's not going to tie to a big idea. That's not going to fit into the grander theme of the exhibit. It's just going to be all over the place. And having a theme or an object really helps to cultivate and attract people for interviews. Um, I did a workshop, actually, from uh, a bunch of students at the University of Toronto in their museum studies program, did a study, and they uh, they found fairly conclusive evidence that when they tied an oral history interview to an object, so they asked people to bring in an object from a certain period or from a certain subject and come in and talk about that object, that they gave much more rich, um, enriching and full interviews in the oral history than if they had just come in to talk about their own experience. Pardon me. There's something about um, kind of separating yourself just a little bit by talking about an object and not so much talking directly about yourself the whole time that really just kind of helps people feel a little bit more relaxed. So, you know, like anything, it's always good to do some background research to know who you're talking to. Um, That's really important, you know, like don't go in completely blind, have an an idea of what the subject is, about who the person is, so that you can just kind of guide the interview a little bit better. And that's always a balance too, because you don't want to lead the interview too, too much, like leading the witness type style, but you also want to know kind of where you're trying to take the interview and what you're hoping to get out of the interview, like we've kind of discussed. Um, so in, in terms of that, it's also important not to over-research. Uh, you don't want to have done so much research, like I said, that you're kind of leading the witness, that you're leading the interviewer to try to say something specific. I've, I've seen interviews like that. Um, a couple modern interviews even come to mind where it was just very clear that the interviewer had something wanted the interviewee to say something very specific and they weren't quite saying it. So the interview just kind of kept asking the question more and more specifically. And it was just like, okay, so you just want my mouth to say these words. <laughs> you don't really care what I have to say. And that's important. So uh, one way to avoid that is not over-researching, so to not be a complete expert going in so that you actually have something to learn from the interview. Um, and some of the fun of the oral history, of doing an oral history, is discovering new information. So if you're, if you're researching too much, you're not going to learn anything. And some of the fun 
fun is learning something and then kind of like going down those rabbit holes and saying like, okay, where is this going to lead? Like, I didn't know anything about this. Tell me more. Give me context. Like, and and that's yeah. exciting. It's it's like the old adage of um, you can't. Sometimes if you're stuck in the forest, you can't see the trees or something. I that I butchered that. That's really bad. But <laughs> uh, it's essentially w- w- missing the forest for the you're trees. You're missing the forest for the trees. So like yeah. you're so deep in the project or the oral history in this case that you can't see the larger purpose of it, right? Exactly. The larger right. big idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and lastly, too, in terms of preparing for an interview, is making sure that the interviewee knows what they're getting into. Um, I think that's so important. Like, you know, um, putting them in a comfortable private space with no audio interference so that you're really just kind of focused and in the moment. Um, making sure that they're aware of all the technicalities of what they're there to do and why and how. And again, too, all of this comes back to why are you even doing this? You need to communicate that to them so that they know that they're comfortable because they're on the record and theoretically, you know, they've signed a release form so that you now own this interview so if they don't know why or what they're talking about um or for what purpose they're talking then that's really going to make an uncomfortable interview and then you're going to have backlash later um and then finally my last little piece of advice which is a little bit more technical is charge and test all of your equipment before you go in don't assume that the batteries you know are good to go before you start test Mm -hmm. them make sure all the cables work the microphones work just Charge and test everything before you go in because the worst thing you could have happen to you is you're in the middle of this really great interview and you got all this momentum and they're just saying exactly everything you've wanted to hear and it's perfect and then something cuts out or you don't realize it cuts out. You go back to listen to it and they're static throughout the whole thing. Um, You know, there's interference, whatever, whatever. That's the worst. So that's my final piece of advice is just just check everything, please, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. for all of our sakes. For sure. For sure. So, Garrett, um, you've have you had any experience um, conducting oral histories, or you're familiar with doing? Oh, I have. You I have? have. I've conducted an oral history with oh, the right. man sitting across the table from me. Actually, <laughs> hey yo, that's great. <laughs> that's great. So, why don't you go ahead and fill us in now? T- tell us about the actual process of conducting the oral history, right? So now we we know why it's important. We've prepared for it. Let's actually conduct the oral history. So. Many of you might be thinking right now, like, what's the difference between an oral history and an interview? And I can tell you point blank, there's really not that much of a difference. It's just kind of what Malcolm has been hitting on the purpose. So when you're thinking about conducting an oral history, think about how you would interview someone. Mm-hmm. Like one of the most important things is that you have to listen. You have to know what questions you're going to ask. So that all comes with the preparation. One thing that Malcolm mentioned that I do want to kind of hit on is this idea of a, setting up your interview in a space where there's no audio interference or it's like a private space that's something that is really kind of up to the purpose of what you want the interview Mm. to be about because for some people like the oral history is just like a podcast if you want it to be able to just be listened to verbatim like the interview and you're trying to get this like feeling of like the bottom up maybe you do kind of want to be in a in a situation where there is a little bit of background noise where you can hear the city behind you it's just kind of really depending on what you want the interview to be about. but And and like Garrett's saying, too, I think that does kind of go back to if you know how you're going to use it, like if you know uh, that might di- uh, dictate whether you record your own voice as the interviewer, too, because sometimes I don't record my own voice because I know we're only going to use snippets of what they say. So right. I'm not even going to mic myself so that I'm not in it at all. Um, and then I have to be really careful to not like interject. Um, sure. Like so if like because, you know, like when you're listening to someone, you kind of nod your head, and you go, mm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. 
But if you know you want to use just their audio, you got to really make sure that you're not doing that throughout the interview. You're not adding any kind of like filler right. words or anything like that. And you got to make sure you're only nodding your head, not going, mm-hmm, oh, mm, no. You know, because <laughs> you don't want that in the exhibit playing, for example. Right. And when I remember learning about this in my public history classes in um, college, my professor presented it to me in kind of the way you view yourself as a historian. If you would view yourself as a humanist historian and you kind of want like the folklore of the subject that you're interviewing, you're going to include like these forest sounds or the sounds of the city behind you. But if you're, if you're one of those like pure academic historians who you're going to take this oral history and put it into one of your academic papers, you really do want to be in a, in a setting like we are right now in a basement where there's absolutely no audio interference. You want to be able to just hear what your subject is saying. So that's just kind of down to what, again, the purpose of your interview is for. Yeah, that's great. You heard it from Garrett. Step one, find a basement. <laughs> <laughs> Preferably the FHA basement. This is the least <laughs> creepy one. <laughs> um, but one of the most important things to strive for. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you don't the have to least elaborate. creepy basement. You don't have to elaborate on that, but we yeah. should unpack that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel In our safe. next episode, <laughs> unpacking basements with Garrett. <laughs> I feel safe here for the most part. That's good. This is a safe space for you. <laughs> All right. So one of the most important things to strive for in oral history when conducting the actual interview is having a good rapport with your subject because that could truthfully ruin your interview. If your subject thinks that you're stupid or thinks that they or just like hates you, <laughs> they're going to offer answers that are absolutely unhelpful to what you're trying to get. If sure. you can at least establish this sort of like good working relationship with your interview subject, it's going to go like miles for you in this interview. Um, again, it's something that we do really have to reiterate a lot of times. Malcolm hit on it. Don't over-research. Don't over-research your subject because it's like Malcolm said, you want to discover new information from this interview. You don't want to know like exactly who they were when they were 12 years old. If you're going to ask a question about like, what was your life like when you were 12 years old? Like you want to be able to not push them towards the answers you want, but rather let them tell the story of the event in their own way. Yeah. And speaking out of experience too, Garrett, you know, when you interviewed me for your class project, like you had no idea the different places I'd lived mm -hmm. around the world and you found that really fascinating and I caught that from you. You're like, oh, I didn't know that. And, you, right. and it actually kind of made me excited to talk about it more because I didn't feel like I was just telling you things you already knew. Right. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of merit to that. Exactly. And that kind of goes in perfectly to my next point is when conducting an interview, even if it's not for an oral history, if you're like a journalist, one of the most important aspects is listening intentionally to your subject, making sure that you're not just like writing down their answers as they go and not listening to the substance of that answer. Because if you listen to them, it's going to open them up to actually answering those like follow-up questions or going down a maybe more sensitive routes of questioning. Like if you if you're listening intentionally and you're showing that like you have empathy for the situation that they're mm -hmm. discussing, they might be able or they might be more willing to talk about things that they wouldn't be if you were just like sitting there like asking question after question. Yeah. You know. And with that, it's always important to remember to respect your interview and their their your interview subject and their answers because sometimes when you're conducting an oral history, you're you're talking about events that are like sensitive there. You're talking about events that maybe they don't necessarily want to remember or display how they remember. So if they're being vulnerable and answering those questions to you, and it might not be exactly how you know the historical accounts of the uh, situation were, 
you have to realize like this is how they remember the event. It might not be exactly what has been written in books, but it's their experience of the event. So make sure to respect that when you're conducting the interview. Um, this is kind of more of like the the nitty gritty of conducting an interview. Don't ask yes or no questions. Don't ask questions that can be answered by like a single answer. It's nice to start out with those easy questions like what is your name? What is your age? Where are you from? Things like that. But when you are starting to actually try to conduct the interview for the substance, don't ask essentially leading questions that give you one answer answer or ask open-ended questions. Um, Malcolm actually already hit on it try to cut down on the mm-hmm and like the <laughs> just the random like things that we do in normal conversation because if you're hoping to take this this interview and put it out for in an exhibit or just in a podcast form you don't want your mm-hmm to like over overcrowd the answers that they're giving i'm suddenly becoming so self-conscious of doing that in this podcast know, right? now because like i'm like just not just not don't say mm-hmm. <laughs> i think in that's something that i really when we first started recording this because it was after i had um done my class about well my public history class where i learned how to do oral histories in like the academic sense i started to think about that and i'm like it's the same sort of thing as like that background noise question it really depends on what the purpose of your interview is if it's sure, meant yeah. to be a podcast form it kind of is necessary to have those like random like little interjections the mm. mm, because you need to know <laughs> <laughs> I'm like so hyper aware of them <laughs> you, but you have to you have to like kind of make it clear that you're there too but as Malcolm oh, yeah, said exactly. earlier if it's just going to be on a TV or on a radio in an exhibit you don't necessarily want you to like interject in that same way yeah. Um, so yeah, and really just to circle back that like your purpose will dictate how you conduct the exactly. interview. But if you don't have a clear purpose, you might end up doing the wrong thing and then realize later it's like, oh, but I really want to use this here, but it doesn't work because of the way I conducted the interview or the way I recorded it. So right. it really just circles back like the way you conduct the interview is entirely built off of what you intend to do with it. So exactly. Figure it out. <laughs> and then just a, a couple more quick points about how to conduct the questioning in an interview. If you want to change the subject, a really good tactic is to use statement questions where you state something that you know about their life and then ask a question about it. So like, I have read that you were the founder of the Bavarian Inn Lodge. What led you to making this decision? That helps you shift the topic of conversation away from maybe something that you don't want to talk about or that is getting down a road that is not something you really need in the oral history. Um, and in that same vein, you should be allowing your subject to drift off of subjects that you didn't put in your like outline or in your uh, like form of pre-questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are thing are times like you don't want the interview to be three hours long. So if you <laughs> if you really want to get to certain questions, you do have to use tactics like that. It's it's like anything. There's a balance, you know. Like right. You kind of want to stay mostly on track, but if it's interesting and you know, and they're excited about it, let them kind of go off topic and then just bring them back when it's time to, you know, and when it's appropriate. And then as in any good interview, make sure you ask follow-up questions. Don't just go down your outline and ask like the questions you sent them before. Just make sure that you're following up and showing that you're listening. It helps them feel more open to answering certain questions. And again, uh, a good oral history interview is between an hour to two hours. You really don't want to go over two hours, especially if you're not like offering breaks like if you hit if you hit that two hour make sure you're giving them a break um 
sometimes, especially the content of oral histories can be very sensitive information, as I've said a few times. So if you're making them relive this, essentially, give them a break and let them let them recuperate from what they're talking about. Yeah. In terms of um, and follow up to just um, if, if you will permit me, um, I, th- I find two things I always try to follow up on are dates um, and pronouns, because especially once people get going, they'll say, oh, yeah, and we did this, he did this, she did this, they did this. It's really important to follow up on who they are actually referring right. to with those pronouns. Like, okay, so was this Tommy? Was this, who was, like, who's he? Mm-hmm. Um, and dates, too, because they'll say, oh, and then this happened next summer, last summer, or anything like that. It's it's a really always a good idea to kind of just follow up with, like, okay, when you said last summer, was that 1927? Was that 1950? You know? really just reemphasize um because especially when you listen to it out of context you're not going to have that timeline in front of you so it's really really a good idea to try to get as much chronology and timeline established throughout the interview and then just make sure that they kind of start using a lot of pronouns to kind of just come back to okay but who who is he <laughs> right yeah i mean there's a lot of tough things to deal with too depending on the topic of your oral history too um and we've mentioned quite a bit of it right there's ways that you can relieve some of these tough topics like just making the interviewer feel comfortable, the interviewee feel comfortable, you know, give them a comfortable chair. The interviewer can feel comfortable too. <laughs> no, I prefer to stand <laughs> during the entire interview and just hover over them. Sit on a chair with a nail in it. <laughs> Keep yeah. you on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be ready. Got to be ready for anything. But um, <laughs> Welcome to history. <laughs> um, but no... It, it is important to make them feel comfortable, right? Comfortable chair, water, make sure they have water in case, you know, they they start coughing or get a little choked up about something. Which it's, actually helps with the interview recording as well as mm. if, you're, um, if your mouth is lubricated with water, you mm. just won't have as many mouth sounds in the mic and everything like that too, so... No, I never thought about that. Garrett, of course, he's the youngest. <laughs> Forgive him. Come on, Garrett. <laughs> Get it together. You're in a professional podcast now. Jeez. This is why we have to put a disclaimer at the beginning of every <laughs> podcast. I guess this is why I'm not paid. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many reasons. <clears throat> uh, but in all seriousness, though, when you are uh, considering the tough stuff of interviews, um, one of those tough parts about oral histories is the issue of memory, right? Mm. For example, if you are interviewing somebody um, about something that was 30 years ago. Or, for example, it's becoming more and more rare to be able to, to, be able to find these people nowadays, but a World War II veteran, right? Um, th- the actual individual of remembering that event, their memory may be uh, distorted by all those years in between, about all the events that they've experienced, about uh, maybe traumatic life experiences too. Um, and so... I think it's just important to recognize, right, that that is a truth about oral histories. It's something we can't change. Um, And it's something we just have to be cognizant of when we are interpreting the interview, right? Absolutely. Well, bias still exists, too. I Mm -hmm. guess that's the thing, and that's something I've come across as well, is someone's telling you a story, and it's just wrong. It's just right. blatantly mm-hmm. wrong. Like mm-hmm. the timeline doesn't line up. The people aren't where they say the people are. And you have to kind of reconcile that sometimes. Um, and even with ourselves too, it's not even always intentional. Um, sometimes right. we just try to remember things a little bit better than they were. Um, like how many times have, you know, do you think you have a memory of something, but then you kind of realize you've just been told about like a story from your childhood and you've seen a photo enough times that your mind has kind of built a memory around yeah. it. 
but it's not really real. Like it's just right. like it's been reinforced so many times that it's kind of there. So you have to kind of be aware of that and be aware that people have biases. You know, they want to come across as good as they can, especially when the little red light comes on and they know they're being recorded. Um, no one wants to come off badly. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's something to always keep in mind that there is inherent bias in anything. And, and I think these. Oh, go ahead, Garrett. And sorry. one thing to remember is even if a story you know is blatantly false, like the their memory is not really accurate to the proper like historical timeline it doesn't make it a bad oral history it oral histories are still all about how a certain individual viewed an event or a certain group of individuals viewed a certain event it doesn't necessarily matter if their story is blatantly false it's their story at the end of the day Hmm, sure and that yeah that's a really great really great point and um i think this might also go without saying too but um Oral histories, these are some of the things, memory and things like that, that make people wary of using oral histories, especially in like academia and stuff for for centuries. But I think it's important to recognize these same biases still exist in written sources, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So it doesn't discredit oral histories by any means. Um, It just means we have to be cognizant of them, um, especially when there's a large gap in time, right? Well, um, like anything, it's just because there's one doesn't mean it's true or not. Uh, you always have to, you know, corroborate the stories, cross-check the facts, everything like that. So, mm-hmm. And so, Malcolm, you're our collections manager. So you deal with archiving, preserving oral histories. So they tell me. <laughs> give, give us an insight into what does that look like? Um, what does it look like after you've handled an oral history? How can we accurately preserve this? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess a little bit of technicality first. Um, uh, best practices is really to always try to record everything at its highest possible um, quality. Um, as, as we tend to say, it's a lot easier to downsample than it is to upsample or upscale um, versus downscaling. So um, just in terms of uh, general best practices, in terms of audio recording, the best format for recording audio is 48 kilohertz sample rate at a 24-bit rate. I won't get into the technicalities of why or what. That um, all went right over my head. Yeah, it's a lot of numbers. <laughs> it's a lot of numbers, but that is um, that is HD audio quality, basically. is 48 kilohertz sample rate and 24-bit um, rate. Um, and if you record those, I would highly recommend you record it with a WAV or WAV or WAV uh, file type, not MP3. Um, long story short, MP3 files are highly compressed, so you can't do as much with the audio afterwards because it's so compressed. Um, so basically given your means recorded at the highest possible quality. So for example, I mean, this podcast right now, we're recording it uh, with WAV files at 48 uh, kilohertz, 24 bit rate. So and most like handheld recorders will automatically default to recording at a WAV file anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as it, honestly, as, and there's other file types, there's um, AIFF, there's a lot of other high quality file types, but really just as long as it's not MP3, <laughs> you should be good to go. Um, you can get into a bay two of 48 kilohertz versus 41 uh, 44.1 but like i said generally speaking 48 kilohertz sample rate is is high quality hd um if you're also recording video which is becoming very popular um definitely try to record at either 4k resolution or 1080p um 1080p is full hd and obviously 4k is four times the uh 
the resolution of 1080p. But 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 again, too, just try to record it the highest level possible. If you have a 4K camera, use it. But if you have a 1080p, use it. I just wouldn't use anything lower than 1080p, especially today. And like again, like your phone records 4K, your phone records 1080p, so that should be just fine in terms of the resolution. So in a scenario like this, you want to record at the highest uh, quality, again, really just to get down to that compression rate. So compression is basically just like compressing files to make them smaller, um, and they kind of lose some of their resolution um, when you compress. So that's why you always want to um, record at the highest rate, because then if you need to compress it for something else, that's a lot easier. It's really hard to take a compressed file and then make it a lot higher resolution, essentially. Um, so for preservation, it is recommended that you keep three copies, a physical copy, a digital copy, and now a cloud copy as well, since cloud storage has become so popular. And uh, for all these storages, again, you just want to store it at the highest resolution and then just make a copy and then downscale it or downsample it as you need to. They're yawning. They're so bored right at this point. <laughs> They're like, oh, I noticed yeah. that. <laughs> It's okay, we're almost at the end here, guys. Um, and it's important to inc include all documentation. So the physical would be like a CD or um, even uh, uh, like a thumb drive would be considered a physical copy. Um, a digital copy would be something that lives probably on like a plugged-in external hard drive or the hard drive of a computer. And then a cloud would be, you know, any kind of cloud storage that they have. You know, Apple has its own cloud storage, Dropbox, Google Drive. These are all cloud storage solutions that do automatic backups. Uh, for us, our, um, our collections database now is cloud-based. So we access it on the internet and it's automatically backed up on the cloud. Um, and then we can create digital and physical copies from it. Uh, but we don't have enough paper to make physical copies. So we just, <laughs> we just stick with a little digital download every now and then. Um, and then with all of this, you know, both in physical and digital format, you want to kind of keep all of your documentation. So this includes all of your email correspondence, your release forms that indicate who owns the copyright, how it can be used, the transfer of ownership and all of that kind of stuff, and then save all the interview files as well. So if you make downsampled copies, so you recorded it in a, in a WAV file, and now you have an MP3, just save it all together um, so that it's all together and stored in perpetuity. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff um, can be tough to recognize too. Like the what equipment do I need? Things like that. If you ever need sample release forms, equipment lists, things like that, um, check out the Oral History Association. Um, they have everything you need on there, including like I like I mentioned, and also tools to like teach oral history in the classroom, other toolkits, man toolkits, manuals of like best practices. Um, Oral History Association is a wonderful, wonderful resource. Absolutely. So definitely check it out. And we've helped a lot of people ourselves, too. So like, mm -hmm. if, if, if you've listened to this uh, podcast and you're like, I just want to talk to them about it, you know, sure. we can pass along a lot of this stuff and mm -hmm. cut some corners for you, I guess. <laughs> sure. Um, so just, eat, yeah, all of our contact is on um, frankamuthmuseum.org. You'll find us on the contact form. Yeah, check us out. And uh, I think that kind of wraps it up, unless anyone else has anything else to add. I think oral histories are one of the coolest ways to engage with history, personally. Um, I, I've had some really, really memorable interviews with some people, and there's something just really special about an oral history that you can't quite find in a textbook that you can't quite teach to. You just have to kind of get involved with it. The first oral history I ever did um, was when I was in school for museums, and I did an interview with my grandmother as part of a project. And I learned more about my grandmother in that one hour that I did that interview than I had up 
until that point. So I think I was about 24 or 23 at the time. And I seriously, I learned more about her in that one interview than I had ever uh, had uh, before. So even if you know, we've talked about intent a lot and all this kind of stuff. And that's more for like institutions trying to do it. But if you're just a person and you just sort of need an excuse uh, to just learn more about the people in your life, try doing an oral history. Try just sitting them down, putting a recorder in between you guys and have a conversation for an hour. You'd be amazed at what you find, um, what you can learn. And it really, to me, it just makes history come alive because history is made by people and experienced by people. Um, it's not just, you know, Winston Churchill writing his uh, book series on the on World War II, and then we all just copy that into our papers, you know. Um, oral history is there so that we can all live history together and not just read about it in a textbook. Very well said. That's why I love history from the bottom up, and I consider myself more of a social historian in that sense. So um, we'll leave it there. And thank you all for listening in today. Um, check us out. We're on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Anywhere you can find us, check us out. Um, also, frankmuthmuseum.org. Um, thanks again, and I'll be the same. same.